If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 1 through 9. As you do that, let me first say welcome to those of you who are here visiting with us, uh, either on campus or online. Uh, My name is Kyle Valere, and I'm one of the associate pastors on staff here at Liberty. And what a 48 hours it has been for our staff. Um, But I am grateful uh, for this staff uh, who has worked tirelessly uh, to shuffle some things around as we pray for Pastor Tim. Um, Talking or going back and forth with him this morning, uh, just seeing how he is. And uh, he definitely appreciates all the prayers, uh, so we want to continue to lift him and Dawn and Caden up, uh, as uh, Tim is not feeling well. Um, I am also grateful uh, that we are in the middle of a straightforward and uncontroversial series, um, <laughs> so good timing, good timing. Um, So just for fun, uh, we are going to change it up a bit this morning. Um, I thought that speaking on racial tension with 36 hours uh, prep time would not be wise, and so uh, why not just talk on gender and sexuality? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, So again, if you are a visitor this morning, you have picked a dandy Sunday to visit. Um, (laughs) All right, if you have your place, and I hope you do. Um, I hope you're also thirsty because you are about to drink from a fire hose. Uh, so uh, let us go ahead and begin. Our topics this morning, gender and sexuality, span a spectrum of concerns that have on the one hand plagued the human race for millennia, to, on the other hand, complexities that two decades ago would have been been unintelligible to people. But in reality, issues related to gender and sexuality are simply the presenting problems in our culture. The core, fundamental, and essential part of this entire spectrum of issues remains the same, and it's this. Is there an overarching design that each of us is to conform to, or is life completely random and up to us to infuse with meaning and purpose? That's the question. That is the fundamental, central, and essential question of this spectrum of issues. You see, because we've made an assumption throughout this entire series. When we've asked the question, what's the truth about whatever topic, we've presupposed that there is the truth about these issues. Not a truth, not your truth, not my truth, but the truth. That somehow, somewhere, there really is this meta-truth, this overarching truth to know and wrestle with about these matters. That no matter what I say, or you say, or culture says, we all have to look outside of ourselves to some higher standard of truth and align our lives and perspectives with it. But in our day and time, that type of thinking is unimaginable. Instead, self, self is regarded as the dispenser of what is true, the one who gets to distinguish between what is true and what is not. So we're told things like, be true to yourself, live your truth, or be your true self. But think through this. This leaves people trying to discover their truth or their true self by by looking within, by assessing their own feelings and contentment with life. If I don't feel content, well, then I must not be living true to myself. Everything is assessed by feelings and inner contentment. 
As one writer put it, no one can tell you how to be true to yourself except you. So by denying any overarching purpose outside of myself that should inform my life, I'm left to create my own meaning and purpose and significance based on what seems, to, seems right to me. Again, I'm, I'm left to conform to my true self as I perceive it to be, not as I'm told that it is by some higher authority. I don't have anybody telling me this is how you ought to live. Instead, I'm left to create my own purpose and meaning. And this leads me to reject anyone or anything that would assume to restrain my self-expression of my true self. Because if the overriding concern of life is that you be able to live your truth, then nothing that stands in your way of doing that ought to be allowed to stand. In other words, I know me, you don't know me, you know you, I don't know you, and the ideal of life is that I be true to myself, you be true to yourself, and no one gets in the way of either of us doing that. This is what we mean when, when you hear phrases like, you do you, and I'll do me. That's what's being said. Brothers and sisters, what is unfolding before our eyes in culture is this clash between one view of life which says meaning and purpose are given by a creator and another view of life in which meaning and purpose is cultivated from within. And we've started with this little detour because while you may be able to cite and quote every Bible verse related to gender and sexuality, if you don't recognize there's a deeper quarrel with the Christian worldview when it comes to these issues, then you will remain under-equipped to engage with these issues. Because in many discussions, in many, most discussions, the concern is not what does the Bible say about gender and sexuality. Instead, it's this. Is the purpose of your life given to you or is it created by you? Do you see the difference? Put another way. Are you the sovereign one of your life or is there a sovereign one over your life? If I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, then I get to define my true self. And if my life is random and my existence is merely the sum of time plus matter plus chance, then I don't have to conform to anyone or anything outside of myself. Again, if this is so, remember, no one can tell you how to be true to yourself except you. This is the fundamental point of collision between the modern and biblical understandings of gender and sexuality. One perspective says gender and sexuality, these are social constructs that are malleable based on your own personal preferences and experiences. The other says that gender and sexuality are gifts to you, bestowed upon you by your Creator who expects them to be treated with dignity and handled with integrity. This is why it's foolish for anyone from either of these perspectives to believe there could be a middle ground of compromise. There can't. There's not a middle ground. There can't be if we understand this issue rightly. Now, none of this entire discussion is simply a claim about accepting people or loving people or being inclusive. That's the kind of language that we use to talk about it, but that is not what is at stake here. That's not what ultimately we are discussing. It's all saying something about what is true. And even deeper than that, it's all saying something about the nature of truth. Is it fixed? Is it absolute? Or is truth something that I create, define, and express as I see fit? Put another way, 
Do you define you? Or does a creator define you? Both cannot be true. Now, even as I say that, I know that what's true at times is more easily accepted by our heads than by our hearts. When it's you, or your friend, or your child, or your coworker, or someone else you genuinely care for, speaking the truth in love can feel like ripping out your own heart. And I am not unaware that for several, maybe even many of you in this room or watching online, these issues related to gender and sexuality hit home in ways that perhaps no one else knows. Liberty, there are people that you see every Sunday morning on campus here and weekly out in the community who are struggling to reconcile the truth of God's word with what feels intimately painful in their own lives or the lives of those that they love. And there are still others that you see here or around our area who have never known the freedom of not having to daily create their own true-to-self identity based on how they feel or to whom they are attracted. And so far be it from us to offer trite, simplistic, and callous answers to problems the Scriptures refuse to address in trite, simplistic, and callous ways. So with that in mind, I know you're comfortable, so I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I'm, I'm going to read Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. Mark writes, And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to dig into your word, to search it for answers to these two issues of gender and sexuality, we pray that your spirit would speak through your word, through my words, and give us hearts that would be transformed to know you more, to love you more, and to seek to reach others more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it may seem odd that I picked a passage in which Jesus is speaking about divorce to speak about issues related to gender and sexuality, but I did so for one particular reason to show that Jesus Christ did not reject the order of creation in the Old Testament as a relic to be discarded. But instead, Jesus upheld it as the standard by which issues related to men, women, marriage, and sexuality were to be judged. What I mean is this. When presented with this question, Jesus didn't speak some new teaching out of thin air. Instead, he turned the Pharisees' attention back to the creation account in order to highlight what was intended by God. Which means that in this story, in this passage, Jesus affirmed that a divine design lay behind the creation of human beings as male and female and behind the marital relationship between one man and one woman for life. Jesus didn't say, that's a good question, Pharisees, what do you think? He didn't say, well, I wouldn't tell you to not live your, your truth or live your true self. He didn't, he didn't say that. No, he said, there is a truth 
that's been given for us all to look back to in order to know the answer. And it's found in the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. So no less authority than Jesus himself, God himself in the flesh, when it comes to matters related to gender and sexuality, he says, go back to the beginning to see the intention. And not only that, but he points to it as the ideal to which we should both judge and conform our current understanding of these matters. Remember I said, the fundamental question is this, do you define you? Or does a creator define you? Who gets to judge whether you're living the life you ought to live? You and only you? Or is there a higher authority you must answer to? Jesus is saying there's a higher authority. He's your creator, and he's presented that standard in the Genesis account of creation. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This isn't according to Kyle. This isn't according to Liberty Baptist Church. This isn't according to just Christians in general. This is according to Jesus. If there's no creator, if we are simply the sum of time plus matter plus chance then there is no standard that we as his creatures must conform to. But if there is a creator, then we don't have the final word about our lives, no matter what our inner person may say. Jesus doesn't say, look within for these answers. He says, look back. Look back to what was intended. That's where your answer to the genders and to the relationship between them is to be found. And yes, the context of this passage is all about marriage and divorce, but if the foundation of marriage is the creation of human beings as male and female, which is what Genesis teaches, then certainly by citing this passage, Jesus is teaching us that in all matters related to what we are intended to be and how we are intended to relate, we must look to what God has revealed and purposed from the very beginning. And by this, Jesus teaches us three fundamental truths. First, we learn here that God has created human beings as male and female. There is a distinction between the two rooted in the creative work of God. It was and is God's purpose that humanity be divided between two and only two sexes, male and female. Man by himself is created to carry out the work of God and expand the image of God throughout creation, but he's not able to do that on his own. So what does God do? So God creates woman from and for the man to be his helper to carry out God's desire for humanity. Her body and her role corresponds to and complements the man's body and role. She shares his nature That's why Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But but she differs physically and functionally. And none of this has changed on this side of mankind's fall into sin. It didn't change after Genesis chapter 3. Jesus upholding the dignity of marriage by appealing to creation means that we can also do that for the dignity of biological sex. And there is nowhere in Scripture that says God allows for the undermining of His intentions related to sex. So before and after the fall, before Genesis 3 and after Genesis 3, the Lord's purpose for humanity remains the same. Two sexes, male and female. Second, there is no division between being male and being a man or being female and being a woman. In other words... The Bible teaches that biology and gender cannot be separated. This flies in the face of the transgender uh, ideology and movement that would distinguish between your inner person, your gender identity, and what feels like, uh, what you feel like, or what you think you are, between your internal self-understanding and your biological uh, sex determined by birth. So this is where you get people saying things like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or a woman trapped in a man's body. But for a person to say that type of stuff 
is to view the inner person as the real or true self and the outer person as the false self. You see how they're distinguishing between those two? The Bible does not allow for that. The Bible teaches that we are not souls trapped in bodies. That's too low of a view of the body. Your body and soul have been created by God to go together because you are an embodied creature. God does not distinguish between those two as if they could be different. They always go together in His plans and purposes from creation. Genesis 1 and 2 is clear that God creates men and women biologically distinct from one another and then grounds their roles in creation and their relationship with each other in that biological distinction. Which means, at the ground level, which means if you were born biologically a male, then you are a man. And if you were born biologically a female, God intends for you to be a woman. Your physical body is intended by your Creator, and His plan for your life as a man or as a woman is both bound to and revealed by your physical, biological sex. And third, the distinction between males and females forms the basis for the union of marriage and every expression of unity within it, including sex. The oneness of sex is based upon the distinction between males and females. It's the physical expression of the deeper unity formed between them. And it's within the confines of marriage that sex is to be expressed. This is why the, this is why the man and the woman becoming one flesh at the end of Genesis 2.24 happens only after the man has left his father and taken hold of the woman as his wife at the beginning of Genesis 2.24. But not only that, the reason that this physical expression of unity should only happen within marriage is because later on in Scripture, it's revealed that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. Sex between a husband and a wife is to, be, is to visibly express a deeper spiritual union between Christ and His people. And because the love between Christ and the church is a covenant love, the only way to rip, rightly represent that love is within the confines of a covenant relationship, i.e. marriage. Every other form of sexual expression, heterosexual or homosexual, distorts this picture, which is why they are to be rejected. Pornography and unmarried sex pictures Christ using others at their expense for the sake of His own gratification and apart from any covenant. That's not the Christ of Scripture. Adultery pictures Christ betraying His people and His commitment in order to pursue pleasure by embracing another. That's not the Christ of Scripture. And homosexuality pictures there being no real difference between Christ and His people as though they're interchangeable. One could be the Savior, one could be the saved. One could be the Redeemer, one could be the redeemed. This is not about Christianity being more prudish on sexual matters. This isn't about us trying to be more holier than thou than other people. This is about rightly reflecting Jesus. And this is why believers cannot bend on these matters. We cannot allow that gender and sexuality would be defined by us because ultimately they're not about us. We are constrained to be faithful in our reflection of God in all matters of our lives. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, and yes, our bodies and our sexual activity. We cannot say that we are ambassadors of Christ or followers of Jesus if we renounce rightly representing Him before others. We can't do that. Now, all of this is well and good, but there are still real questions that have to be answered about these, about these matters that we have to be prepared to give. In our present cultural moment, there are two very pressing matters related to, the gender and to gender and sexuality that we have to address. And they are grouped together 
under the letters LGBT. Now, of course, these are not the only issues related to gender and sexuality that Christians must be aware of. I've I've already mentioned pornography, extramarital sex. We've talked about uh, adultery. Uh, those are massive issues facing the church, particularly pornography. But there is no doubt that the LGBT revolution has brought about a rapid transformation of society's views of gender and sexuality, which is why we have to revisit them. So in order to do that, I want to identify some biblical principles to help us think through these things and to anchor our view of these issues in Scripture. So we're not talking about what's your truth or my truth. We're talking about what is the truth. Now I also want to address some specific questions and objections to the Christian worldview that are commonly voiced today. To begin with, we must be clear that Scripture denounces both homosexuality and transgender thought. No matter, no matter what linguistic or historical gymnastics scholars may try, there is no honest way of getting around the unambiguous teachings of Scripture. Even those who would advocate for this sexual revolution understand this. Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, he, he is a New Testament scholar at Emory. He is supportive of both homosexuality and transgenderism. Listen to what he writes, though. Quote, the task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or, or cultural subtleties. I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good, end quote. Do you see what he's saying there? He's being very open and honest. He said, we're not going to sit here and try to twist the Scriptures to make it say something that it doesn't actually say. We're just, we need to be open that we're just rejecting the straightforward teachings of Scripture. Later, Dr. Johnson goes on to identify that personal experience is that higher authority that he goes to. And he did, he did it again more recently in support of transgenderism. Now, I disagree. I would strongly and vehemently disagree with Dr. Johnson. But I am so appreciative that he is honest and, and, and shows some candor in his writings. He's not going to sit there and try to twist Scripture. He knows what Scripture says. He says, we just reject it. I appreciate that honesty. We need more of it. But as I've already stated, personal experience cannot be the arbiter of truth. As we, re as we read in our passage, Jesus didn't give the Pharisees the privilege of defining truth about marriage and divorce, nor does he give believers today the rights that, those rights regarding gender and sexuality. And though some would say that the biblical authors were ignorant of our current understanding of sexual orientation and gender identity, there are numerous reasons to reject that assertion. I'll only mention one for the sake of time. If the Bible is the very word of the living God who knows all things and is able to do all that he desires, then where he wants his word on any given matter to be true for all people at all times, that's what it is. It is true for all people at all times. And God's teachings on gender and sexuality fall into this category. And thus they stand for all people at all times. We may know more about human bodies than Moses and Paul. Let's just go ahead and say it. We know more about human bodies than Moses and Paul did. But we don't know more and never will know more than God who inspired their writings. God's Word is and must remain our standard of truth. Second, we know that after Genesis 3, all of creation has been impacted by sin. All of us have been impacted by sin. This means that both our bodies and our hearts have been corrupted by the effects of our rebellion against God, though not in the same manner. Because of sin, we desire the wrong things. We, we desire things that we ought not to desire. 
And this is true when it comes to matters of uh, all matters of life, whether, whether um, our work, our, uh, how we view success, whether our sexuality, whatever it is, all our desires have been corrupted by sin. I know of no one in my years of talking to people about these issues. I know of no one, homosexual or heterosexual, who's ever claimed to have chosen to be attracted to what they're attracted to be, or what they're attracted to. I know of no one. But for all the hand-wringing over this issue of whether or not someone is born this way or not, we must remember that none of us gets a pass on our sinful desires just because we can't remember a time when we ever chose them. The Bible's quite clear that you and I were born with all sorts of ungodly desires, but it never excuses us for that reason. And a clear, in-depth understanding of sin's effects teaches us that it's what comes natural to us that's in most desperate need for redemption. What comes most naturally to you is normally against God. It needs redeeming. That's why we have to be transformed. Because what comes natural is ungodly. Because we're bent by nature away from God until we are redeemed by God. As one author put it, no matter how we think we might have been born one way, Christ insists that we must be born again a different way. But since corruption also affects our bodies, we now see the human body breaking down with disease, deformities, and disabilities. We even see people born with intersex conditions whose, whose sex is difficult or impossible to identify at birth. Though extremely rare, this, the genetic sex in such cases is many times identifiable, at which point that child can be raised as either a male or a female. Almost universally, intersex conditions are recognized as rare disorders, not a third sex, as LGBT advocates claim. But regardless of the physical deformity or disability, we know God's intricately involved in forming these bodies, and He uses even their brokenness to bring about His glory. Never does Scripture speak of men and women needing to seek new bodies in this life. That comes in the life to come. But in this life, we're not told to seek new bodies. The same is not true for our hearts, though. The centers of our hearts, the center of our heart, the centers of our thoughts and emotions, affections and perceptions, even self-perceptions, is to change, is to be transformed. Repeatedly, through, through Scripture, we're taught that redemption involves granting new hearts. We just got done with Jeremiah in the previous series. It was Jeremiah 31, one of the promises of the new covenant. God's going to give you a new heart because that's what you need. It's what we all need. Biblically, listen to this, biblically, when there's a disconnect between one's inner person and one's outer person, it's the inner person that must change, not the outer. There is a need for a spiritual heart transplant, a complete reorientation of how one views one's self. Sin has so completely distorted our ability to perceive things, even things within ourselves, that what we need is divine heart surgery, not gender reassignment surgery. Third, because surrendering to Jesus brings about a true heart change, there will be fruit in the life of any genuine believer. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that someone who comes to true faith in Jesus will no longer experience temptations toward same-sex attraction or inner turmoil over his own body. Nor does it mean that someone who has been experiencing same-sex attraction will automatically start being attracted to people of the opposite sex. Instead, authentic faith will look like battling to surrender all of oneself to Jesus each and every day. For those with homosexual attractions, it will mean growing and developing a longing for the righteousness of God, which involves purity in thought and deed. 
And for those who have considered their physical bodies to be mistakes, it will mean striving and fighting to trust in the Lord's goodness and wisdom by praising Him for that which they've mistakenly and sinfully resented in times past. And none of this should be thought easy. But which of us as Christians has found sanctification easy? It's not been a breeze to have my pride and my lusts and my anger uncovered by the Holy Spirit. It's not been fun to realize that my desires are twisted, my self-assessments are skewed, and my abilities are limited. It's never been, and it never has been, enjoyable to see the same temptations, the same wanderings, and the same weaknesses crop up again and again and again in my life. Has it been fun to you? For honest, sanctification is not fun. It's not easy. But this is the Christian life. Count the cost. When all of your inner person is waging war against your belief that the way of Christ is the right way, even when it doesn't feel right, even when it doesn't go your way, even when it costs you dearly, when all of that is going on, the Bible simply points to Jesus and says, He's worth it. And no one who has ever seen Jesus as He really is has ever said, no, He's not. He is worth denying yourself sinful pleasure, whether heterosexual or homosexual. And He is worth trusting Him enough to live as the man or woman He's called you to be through His creation of you as a male or a female. Inner peace is not the marker of whether or not you're living a legitimate God-honoring way. Galatians 5 says there's a war going on in the heart of every single believer between the flesh and the Spirit. Jesus Himself, as a, a man, fully God, fully man, had to say to Himself, nevertheless, not my will, but Your will, Father, be done. Paul had to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And every true believer that you know has had to decide every single day to deny self and take up the cross for the sake of knowing Jesus and loving Him more and more with their lives. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overcome you that is, not, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's true for every temptation, homosexual or heterosexual, and it's true for every temptation experienced by those at peace with their bodies and those not at peace with their bodies. Lastly, the local church must be a place of refuge for both those who are tempted by the LGBT revolution and also for those who have drunk deeply from it and been left unsatisfied by it. That starts with recognizing that, as I said earlier, these are real struggles by those you interact with, possibly on daily or weekly basis. I am still moved by one man's account of growing up in a local church while experiencing same-sex attraction. Listen to this, quote, As I left childhood behind and began to learn more about myself and the world I lived in, I came to realize that what had happened to my mind and body was drastically different than what had happened to my friends. When I started meeting with a small group of guys at my church for prayer and accountability, lust was predictably one of the main topics of discussion. Come on, we're all red-blooded American males here, one of the guys chimed in. We can talk about our struggles openly. Listen to what he says. I came to realize with a mild sense of panic that I couldn't talk about my struggle openly. As they talked, I planned how to keep my answers vague so that my difference would remain a secret. End quote. That man deserved better. And so do others. Make sure, brothers and sisters, that your words and your actions and your humor encourage those around you to be open about their struggles rather than to keep them quiet. We also must better dignify the gift of celibate, unmarried life. Far too often in the church, 
We promote marriage and children as the norm for all people when the Bible nowhere does the same. God does not intend for all people everywhere to be married, and we do a disservice to the the singles in our midst when we try to encourage them with statements like, God's got someone out there for you, or you'll find someone, I just know it. No, you don't. You have no clue whether any man or woman around you will ever get married, yet by those comments, you unintentionally set up that person for disappointment should God lead them to a celibate, unmarried life. Nothing God presents as a gift should be presented by us as a loss. All who are fighting to honor God through a celibate, unmarried life need the encouragement and support of their wider faith family. Next, as parents and believers, we ought to make sure we're standing on biblical grounds before we tell our sons and our daughters, boys don't do that or girls don't do that. As one writer put it, just because a little boy is unusually artistic and gentle does not mean that he should be pushed into thinking of himself as homosexual or transsexual. A little girl may be sporty and tomboyish, but that doesn't mean that she should be pushed into identifying herself as lesbian or trans. Behaviors that would have been accepted as within the normal range, even within a few years ago, are now being interpreted as gender confusion. This defies common sense. Parents have the responsibility of encouraging their children's gifts, even when those gifts may not be stereotypically male or female. End quote. This doesn't mean that cultural norms aren't important. Doesn't mean that. But it is to say they shouldn't give the final and defining authoritative answer. The Bible is the final and authoritative answer. It's the one who gets to be the authority, not our cultural standards. Cultural standards are important. But the Bible is more important. And finally, as believers, we must stand up for the next generation that is growing up in a world inundated by lies and dangerous practices. And this happens on two levels, public policy and in-home discipleship. At a public policy level, we have to stand against the medical and surgical interventions being given to children who identify as the opposite sex. We must stand against that. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, which is the authoritative handbook for psychology and psychiatry, it states, listen to this, as many as 98% of gender-confused boys and as many as 88% of gender-confused girls eventually accept their biological sex after naturally going through puberty. 98% of boys, 88% of girls accept their biological sex if you don't do anything. But our culture is, is rapidly racing to intervene medically and surgically with children before puberty in unalterable ways. Dr. Michelle Cretella is the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians. This is what she says. Young children are being permanently sterilized and surgically maimed under the guise of treating a condition that would otherwise resolve itself in 80% of them. This is criminal. Brothers and sisters, it's not just criminal, it's evil. And just last week, just last week, September 2020, just last week, the American Journal of Psychiatry had to issue a major correction to a recent study after reanalysis demonstrated that neither gender-affirming hormone treatment nor gender-affirming surgery reduced the need of transgender-identifying people for mental health services. It's not worked. People are going under the knife because they think it'll fix what's going on inwardly. Studies are showing it's not fixing the problem. Why? We know 
The outside is not the problem. It's the heart. We have to stand against this. No sane society can stand for this. Neither can Christians. But more crucial than that, any, more crucial than any public policy, any government can put in place is what happens under the roof of every single Christian family. Whether it's Disney Plus or Netflix, or Amazon, any other streaming service, most of them have shows targeting young children with messaging from this moral revolution. I'm not saying that you need to cancel these subscriptions. Not, I'm not saying that. Don't hear me say that. That's the easy way out. I'm saying that we as parents, as older believers, we have got to be willing to do the more difficult thing. Be purposeful with who and what is speaking into the lives of our children. If you think just cutting out the message of the culture is the only thing you have to do, that's not enough. It's not enough. You have to engage. We have to engage the next generation with truth. With truth. And remember, remember the calling of parents to train up your children in the way that he or she should go. That means correcting them when they go against the revealed will of God, their creator. It is great and wonderful to affirm our children. We absolutely need to affirm our children, but it is disastrous to forget that they have been born with a sin nature and to affirm everything that they ever do and think even about themselves. That is a disastrous way to parent. And that is an abdication of what God has called you to do as a parent. So let us celebrate our children. Let us promote godliness to our children. Let us celebrate with them when they do things that are according to God's way. Like, let's, let's build them up. But let us also correct them when they wander from what we as parents know by God's word to be a wayward thought pattern. And teenagers and young adults, college students, let me speak directly to you. No group, no group is being fed this type of thinking more persistently than you, and no group is facing more pressure to get in line than you. But you are not alone. You are not alone. And across this room, and across this church, if not in your very own home, there are older believers who are ready and willing to wrestle with these topics alongside you in open and transparent ways. Do not just accept hook, like, hook, line, and sinker what is being thrown at you from every side. Much of it is a lie, but as we've seen this morning, there is truth to be found. So as I bring this to a close, let me say, if these topics hit home for you, if they're more personal to you or your family than others know, then understand this. The Lord knows your struggle and He is able to empower you to walk in His ways. But it takes surrendering to His authority as Lord and embracing His saving gift of eternal life. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ by confessing your sin and trusting in Him and His death on the cross as payment for your sin, then I want to urge you, that's the, that's the next step for you. But if you've already done that, and still you are hurting in your walk to try and honor Him, even though you have feelings that fall in line with homosexuality or transgenderism, thoughts that fall in line with that, Thing, those kinds of things, let a brother or sister in Christ know that. The local church must become a place of refuge and encouragement in your life that God intends it to be. Which brings me to the rest of us. Let us be that place of refuge and encouragement. May we repent of times where we have not been that. And may we strive to embrace those who are broken in their sin because we remember, we've got to remember there was a time where we were broken in our sin. And our Savior embraced us, redeemed us, 
even if your expression of brokenness was not homosexual or transgender, doesn't matter, you were broken in your sin. And He embraced you. Christ came after you. He pursued you. He saved you. And He calls you His own. We are to reflect that in the lives of people no matter what form their brokenness of sin takes. May we do that faithfully. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You this morning for Your truth. You have not abandoned us to figure out these matters on our own. You have not abandoned us to create our own meaning or purpose, identity in this life. You've given us Your truth in Your Word. You call us only to come and surrender to it. So Father, across this room, You know what is going on in the hearts of Your people. Where there needs to be encouragement, I pray that there will be encouragement. Where there needs to be repentance, I pray that there would be repentance. Father, I pray for those that may be struggling with either of these issues that we've talked about today. Whether they are in this room or watching online, I pray that you would speak the truth and the love that is found in Jesus Christ into their hearts cause them to take that next step that they need to take. Father, may we be faithful to know Your truth and then therefore to walk in Your ways. We give to You glory. We give to You honor for You are worthy of it all. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, my name is Kyle Valer, and I'm one of the associate pastors here on staff at Liberty. Uh, we are glad that you joined us today for our worship service. Our hope is that throughout this worship service, whether that's through the music or the prayer or time or the, the sermon, that you have been uh, spurred on to know and love Christ more. If over the course of this worship service, the Spirit has led you to take that next step, whether that's surrendering to Christ as your Lord and Savior, or whether it's plugging into a local church through membership, or maybe even taking that next step of baptism or serving within the local church, then we want you to do something right now. We want you to go ahead and take out your phone and text the word NEXT, N-E-X-T, next to the number 205-236-3717. That's 205-236-3717. And someone will be in contact with you so that you can follow through and take that next step. Remember, we don't want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so as we go from here and go uh, through this next week, let us be doers of the word. And we hope to see you next week.